I was working for the YMCA. I was working at this church some, and I was doing a lot of working from home, both on stuff for the church and for seminary. And so I was very dependent on my Wi-Fi, making sure that I had access to the internet. Now, during that time, I'd also gotten Mac, my dog. And if you remember Mac, any of you that saw him when he was a puppy, he was a really ornery puppy. He just got into everything, and I realized how hard it was to get a dog. And there was one day I'd been working on something, and I thought, Mac has been quiet for far too long. Usually he lets you know that he's there, and when he's quiet, it means he's getting into something. And around the time that I wondered where he was, I noticed that my internet stopped working and that I couldn't connect to any websites. And so when I went and found him, I saw him playing with the other half of the Wi-Fi cord. He had chewed up and ripped off. And so I was obviously very upset with Mac, but I immediately tried to see what I needed to do. I called my Wi-Fi company, who remained nameless through this, They told me to go to one of their stores that's in Greenwood, so I went there. The store had no idea why they told me to go there because they didn't have the Wi-Fi cord I needed. They said you should go to Best Buy. I went to Best Buy. I bought three different cords to plug into my router. None of them worked. I took those back. The, The company told me to try another technology store. I don't know how much money I had invested in Wi-Fi cords by the end of that day, but none of them were working. So I was about ready to travel, and I said, I'm just going to order a brand new router from them. They shipped it out, and it would be back. It would be there by the time I came back. When I got the box, it had a new router, a power cord, a modem, but no Wi-Fi cord that connected them. The one thing that I wanted them to send me. So that night, I canceled my service with that internet company. I started with a new internet company. And I called it good. But we get frustrated when our solutions don't work. Now, sometimes we just need better solutions. But when you're working on a project or a problem and you're trying different solutions, we can get upset and we can get angry when it feels like everything that we're trying isn't the right answer. We especially get frustrated when the people who are supposed to know what to do really don't know what they're talking about. When I called the Wi-Fi company... I talked to several people who should have known what cords I needed or how to fix what was going on, but none of them knew the direction to point me in. We sense this frustration with Habakkuk. As Habakkuk is writing this book, he has questions for God. And in the last half of our sermon, we saw God's... Not answer, but his message to Habakkuk. Remember, I think this is more of his message about the judgment of Judah rather than a response to Habakkuk's issues. But the word of the Lord does not encourage Habakkuk, but it only gives him more questions. So Habakkuk continues to cry out in our text this morning. This is a continuation of the questions that he has for God. He first talks about how can Judah be so wicked and so evil and God allow them to live. And then God's answer is, if you think Judah's bad, wait till you look at Babylon. They're even worse. They're even more wicked. I'm going to send them and they're going to take Judah into captivity. So Habakkuk's at a point where he says, none of this makes any sense. I have no idea what God is doing. 
And I would tell you this morning that Habakkuk is not just frustrated at the wickedness of the world. It doesn't take a PhD to figure out that our world is wicked, that it has evil, that it's perverse. We expect that from the world. But I think Habakkuk is frustrated with the message of God. It's one thing to be frustrated with your circumstances, what's going on around you. It's another thing to be frustrated with what the Word of God says, and it rubs up against how you want to live your life. This morning, Habakkuk's heard the Word of the Lord. In Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The oracle, the message, the burden that Habakkuk saw, it comes from God. But Habakkuk's saying, God's word doesn't make any sense. And this morning, and I'm not saying we should doubt God's word, but there are times when we read God's word and it doesn't make any sense to us. We struggle with what it says. We have questions, and that's not wrong. It doesn't mean we should doubt God's word. It doesn't mean that God's word is not inspired or not inerrant. It is all of those things, and Habakkuk believed that as well. But it doesn't it does not always mean that Habakkuk liked what God had to say. Habakkuk was a prophet. He would not only hear what God had to say, but he had to go tell this to other people as well. So he's wrestling with the plan of God. And sometimes we struggle with God's plan as well. A lot of the Bible we can read and we can understand, we can generally grasp what God is saying. But it's a lot harder for us to actually put that into practice. So what do we do when God's plan doesn't make sense? Do we stop believing in the character of God? Do we stop trusting the word of God? Do we stop doing what God has called us to do? And what we want to see today is this. When God's plan doesn't make sense, I can trust his character and I can live faithfully. Sometimes we read God's word. Sometimes we see God's plan in life and we say, it just doesn't make any sense. I don't know why God is doing it this way. But we know a couple of things are true. One, God is way smarter than we are. Amen? He has a way higher plan and a better plan than we have. So we can trust his character. There are certain things about God that are always going to be true. And then we can live faithfully. So how do we do this? First of all, I recognize the character of God. Look with me at the first half of our passage, verses 12 of chapter 1, and we're going to go through chapter or verse 1 of chapter 2. We're going to see Habakkuk continue what I think is his questions or his even complaint, you could say, to God. And he starts off by saying this. He says, are you not from everlasting O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. Now, again, I think Habakkuk is just continuing here what he's been talking about. In verses 1 through 4, he has questions for how God is operating in Judah. God has given Habakkuk this message, and he says, I don't think that makes sense. But instead of doubting the character of God, he trusts the character of God. Habakkuk isn't saying that these things aren't true, but he says, I'm even more confused because I know these things are true about God. So let's look at some of the attributes of God that Habakkuk notices. 
First of all, his eternality, the fact that God is eternal. He has no beginning and he has no, no end. In verse 12, this is a rhetorical question, meaning it doesn't need an answer. The answer is yes. God is from everlasting. He's always been around. He's constant. This is challenging for us to wrap our minds around, but God has always existed. God is the most constant thing in the universe. What should be frightening to us is what would life be like if there was no God? And the answer is this. We would not be here. We would not exist. God has always been. He always will be. And it's because of the fact that he's eternal that we can exist at all. God being eternal, not being inside of time, but he's outside of time, also applies to Scripture. He's always been around. Notice the name that Habakkuk uses. He says, O Lord, my God. That word Lord there is Yahweh. It's God's covenant-keeping name. It calls us back to God's dealings with Israel and Egypt. When he called them out of Egypt with different plagues through Moses, when he parted the Red Sea, and then how God made covenant promises to Israel and kept those promises. So even as Habakkuk uses that name for God, he says, you're from everlasting. You've always been. You've always been faithful to your promises. From Genesis to Revelation, God has been the same. He's always been wise. He's always been loving. He has always been just. God is eternal. We see then that God is faithful. We see this with the names Habakkuk uses for God. O Lord, meaning Yahweh. God, meaning Elohim. He's faithful to his promises. Remember all the way back in Genesis to Noah. God promised after destroying the earth with a worldwide flood that he would never bring a universal flood onto the earth again. Now, did he do other things to destroy people on the earth? Yes. Are there times where we have floods? Yes, but not a universal worldwide flood. And what is the symbol that reminds us of that promise? It's a rainbow. God is faithful. He is a faithful covenant-keeping God. We think about Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. But Abraham wasn't the only one that was faithful, but God was faithful to Abraham. And if you've read Genesis, Abraham messes up a couple different times. He lies about his wife and says, hey, this is my sister. He doubts God and God's promise. God says, you're going to have a son. Abraham says, I'm too old. My wife is too old. And so he doubts God by sleeping with his servant and having a child outside of the plan of God. Yet God is faithful and God gave Abraham Isaac. We think about Jacob. Jacob was a deceiver. He was not always a righteous person, but God was faithful to Jacob. We think about David. David is one of the most revered kings in all of Israel. Everyone loves David. God loved David. He said, David's a man after my own heart. He told David, I'm going to put 
a king on your throne forever, ultimately being fulfilled in Jesus. Yet what did David do? David sinned. He slept with Bathsheba. He killed her husband. God is faithful. And I think what's so important about this, God is faithful when we are not. We see God is holy. Habakkuk says, the Lord, my God, my holy one. The holiness of God is one of his most distinguishing attributes. It's the way that we're most unlike God. If you remember back in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees this picture of God. He's on his throne. He's above the earth. His, the train of his robe, which is like the back part, it fills the temple. That was what would set apart kings. They would want to see how long the train of their robe was. God's robe filled the whole building. And he has angels that just hover around God saying, Holy, holy, holy. And when Isaiah sees the holiness of God, what does he say? He says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. God is holy. What Habakkuk is showing us here is not just the attributes of God, but it is that God is perfectly all of these characteristics when we are not, when we are imperfect. Then it says, we shall not die. There's a little bit of a translational difficulty with this. Some say it says, you shall not die, which we would think makes sense. We've been talking about God's eternal nature, God's faithfulness, God's holiness. But I think Habakkuk is showing here with this phrase is God's unchanging nature. We mentioned this verse in Sunday school, but go back to Malachi chapter 3 for just a moment. As God speaks to Malachi here, he says something about his own nature in verse 6. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. God says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God never changes. He's always the same. He's always constant. His attributes are always the same. And what Malachi tells us, what God tells Malachi, is that if God changed, we would be destroyed. God is unchangeable. We see here, we shall not die as an example of the fact that because God keeps his promises, because God never changes, the righteous people, the people who follow God, I don't think this is we as in all of Judah. But Habakkuk says, me and those who are trying to follow God, we will not die because of God's promises to us. And then lastly, we see his sovereignty. It says, and you, O rock, have established them for a reproof. We see Habakkuk here accept the fact that God is sovereign and that he is using Babylon in his plan. The things going on around Habakkuk, the rise of Babylon, their wickedness, the way they would come in and capture Judah, destroy the city. We know this was not by chance. This was not a coincidence. This was because of the sovereignty and the plan of God. 
In the same way that things going on in our world today, events that happen, things that don't make sense to us, they don't happen by chance. They're all part of the plan of God. Now notice the name that Habakkuk uses here. He says, and you owe rock. What does it mean that God is a rock? It's a common name that people in the Old Testament call God. A rock isn't just like a little pebble, but it's a boulder. It's something you could depend on. It's like a foundation, a stone. And when you step on it, you're not worried about slipping or falling. A couple weeks ago, I was playing with Mac in the yard. And if you've ever been to my house or driven by it, there's a little pond outside the fence. And by that pond, there's rocks going and leading down to it. It's very steep getting down there. So when I was playing with Mac, I threw the Frisbee, and it just perfectly went over the fence, but it didn't go into the pond. If it had gone into the pond, I wouldn't have worried about it, but it landed right on the rocks. And Mac just walked over there by it on our side of the fence. He looked at it, and he looked over at me, and he just kind of was sad, and he just laid by it. And he would not come inside until I went outside and got his fence. So I went out there, closed the fence gate, and I slowly tiptoed onto the rocks. Now, if I had slipped, if one of those rocks couldn't hold me, I wouldn't be preaching on Habakkuk. I'd be preaching on Jonah because I would have been in the water. I would have been swimming for my life. But I was able to step on one of those rocks and feel that it could support my weight enough for me to bend down, pick up the Frisbee, throw it back into the fence, and then Mac was happy. It was like nothing had happened. That's what it means to have a rock that can support you. God is a rock. He has character that we can depend on. All these attributes, the fact that God is eternal, the fact that God is faithful, the fact that God is holy, he's unchangeable. And there's so many more that we see in Scripture, they never change. They're always stable. They're always constant. We don't understand that sometimes from a human perspective because we change all the time. Have you ever met a person who's kind of nice? They're sometimes pleasant. They're sometimes merciful. It depends on what mood they're in. They're sometimes wise with what they say. We're not unchangeable people. We're not necessarily stable. We change. We have faults. We're not perfect. But we can trust in God like a rock because God never changes. And so Habakkuk is listing out these characteristics of God, not because he doubts them, but it is because he understands them. And he understands this about the nature of God. And this makes him more confused. So in verse 13, we see him wrestle, especially with the holiness of God. He says, you who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. It's God's holiness that separates him from us. He says, if you can't be around sin, if you can't be around evil, then why would you use such an evil nation like Babylon. It says, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Now, Habakkuk isn't saying that Judah is good 
But he's saying there's still righteous people who know God in Judah. So why would God use the wicked? It seems to go against what Habakkuk already knows about God and his character. Then Habakkuk in verses 14 through 17 is going to use a fishing illustration. Look at verse 14. It says, You made mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. So this shows us again God's sovereignty. He's created all of us, and compared to God, we're like fish. If you've ever had a pet fish or um, you've been to an aquarium, you know that the fish are just kind of stuck in there. Now, in the ocean, they have more freedom, obviously. But these aren't big fish that Habakkuk is talking about, but these are small, insignificant fish, and they really can't help when someone is fishing and they're hooked or they're dragged in by a net. Look at what Habakkuk says. He, referring to Babylon, brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them with his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. These are three different ways you can fish. Either with a hook, a small net just for one person, or a dragnet where is several people casting a net, pulling the fish in. Now, Sue, I don't think I've ever caught a fish as big as what Riker caught the other day. So maybe we all need to go to Riker and see if we can have him teach us how to fish. But last year when my family was on vacation, for some reason, the fish in Michigan were just really biting. We were just fishing with hooks and worms, but they were just really latching on and we were bringing in a lot of fish. And the most competitive person in my family is my sister. My sister, Chloe, is the most competitive, and so she entered into this competition with all of us. Now, I caught probably 12 or 13 fish like the rest of my brothers. My dad and my sister both caught like 25 to 30 fish during that vacation. And the last night of the vacation, they were sitting out there close to midnight, both of them, because they were tied, putting worms on their hooks, casting it out there because they didn't want one to beat the other one. I think they finally just called it a tie because my mom asked them to come in. But one of the things I noticed my sister doing, which I said this was cheating, she disagreed, she would put the worm on the hook. She wouldn't just cast it out, but she'd just drop it on the shallow water by the dock. And she'd get the fish to come over by her worm that were just hardly any bigger than the worm was itself, And they would latch on, she would pull it up, she'd say, I caught a fish. Now, when I called her out on this, I said, Chloe, that's not a fish, it's not even bigger than the worm. She said, you never said how big the fish had to be. You just said that we had to catch fish. So I think her numbers were a little inflated. But Habakkuk is using a fishing illustration to show the different types of fishing that you could do then and all of it's an illustration for how Babylon was this great military power and how the rest of the region was powerless against it we talked last week about how they would bring people into captivity they would integrate them we see this in Daniel Daniel's taken with his friends to Babylon to live with the king and Babylon's pictured as a successful fisherman we see that they catch them with hooks, with nets, with dragnets, so they rejoice and they're glad. But not only are they just ruthless in how they capture people, but look at verse 16. It says, Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, 
For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. I don't think this means that they're addicted to fishing or that their idol is fishing. I do know people that are addicted to fishing and they make fishing an idol. What this is saying is that Babylon is successful. They are a military power. And so they worship their success. They worship the tools that make them powerful. Have you ever met someone like that? They've had success maybe in the financial world, in their career, in their life. And they worship the things that bring them that success. Babylon was an idolatrous nation. But it wasn't because they had all these stone idols or different belief systems. It was because they were idolatrous in themselves. They were prideful. Remember King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 3? He makes a statue and he makes everyone bow down to it. But who was the statue of? It was himself. They were prideful. They were idolatrous. They worshipped themselves. And in verse 17, Habakkuk asks this question of God again. This kind of closes out his questions to God. He says, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? He says, how long are you going to let this go on? And we'll see later that God's response is yes and no. Yes, they would continue doing this, maybe even past Habakkuk's lifetime. But no, God would not let this go on forever. So Habakkuk has set his peace. He's brought his questions to God. So what does Habakkuk do now? What do you do after you've told God everything you need to tell him and you've asked all your questions? Well, he decides to wait. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaints. The picture that Habakkuk uses here is like a watchman, someone who would stand on a tower and watch out for enemies to see if they were coming to attack the city. They would be vigilant. They would be watching. They would be ready to sound the alarm. But Habakkuk here isn't watching for enemies. He's waiting on an answer from the Lord. And in a prophetic way, he's stationing himself, I believe in prayer, asking God to reveal his will. Now, I don't think this means that every time we have a prayer request, we need to go on top of our roof and wait for God to answer and not do anything. But Habakkuk here is showing the positioning of his soul towards God. And he's saying, I've said what I have to say. Now it's time for me to be quiet and wait on God's answer. We don't know how much time passes between when Habakkuk asks his questions and when God answers his questions, but we know that God does answer Habakkuk. Habakkuk would wait for the reply of God. He's not just upset, like I said, at the wickedness of the world, but really at what God had to say, his message. Sometimes we have questions for God, and we've talked about how this even applies to our modern-day questions and suffering that we go through. Sometimes we need to lament, like we talked about last week. We need to go to God, ask our questions, acknowledge our grief before Him, and then trust Him. 
And then sometimes we just need to wait. And it's not easy to do, but it's what we see Habakkuk do here. One of the things we can learn from these words from Habakkuk is that when God's plan doesn't make sense, we can trust his character. These things remain true about God. The attributes of God, we talked about his unchanging nature, his eternal nature, his faithfulness, his holiness. They are stable. We can talk about them. We know that these things are true about God, but it is a different thing to experience them in life. You can read a theology textbook, or you can listen to a sermon, or read an article about the faithfulness or the eternal nature of God. You can know that God loves you from Scripture, but you may not realize his love until it feels like no one else loves you. You can know that God is faithful, but you really crave God's faithfulness when someone close to you betrays you. You can know that God is wise, but you really want that wisdom when it feels like life doesn't make sense. You may believe that God is sovereign, but you really embrace his sovereignty when it feels like life is out of control. One of my favorite books is Trusting God by Jerry Bridges, and he says this, God, in his love, always wills what is best for us. In his wisdom, he always knows what is best, and in his sovereignty, he has the power to bring it about. We see here in the book of Habakkuk, not only questions for God, but the character of God. And even when we have questions, God's character does not change. What I think makes Habakkuk such a beautiful book is that it doesn't just show us what God says, but it shows us how Habakkuk responds to what God says. Because there's times when we know what God's word says, but it's hard to live that out. So when God's plan doesn't make sense, we can first recognize his character. Secondly, when God's plan doesn't make sense, we can resolve to live faithfully. We can resolve to live faithfully. What would God say to Habakkuk? How is he going to respond? Look with me at verse 2. This is where I think God is responding to Habakkuk. It says, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. What is he saying here? Well, he wants Habakkuk to be clear. Remember, he's a prophet. He's going to tell others what God is going to say to him. So God says, you better write this down. If my wife tells me something to do and she wants me to remember it, she says, you better write it down because you're going to forget to do it. And he says, make it clear, make it plain on the tablets so that he may, so that he may run who reads it. Now, what does that mean? Some people kind of allegorize this a little bit and say, It's for those going through life and all of life's challenges that they can read it. No, literally, they would have messengers, they would have heralds who would go from city to city running with a message and they would have it on a tablet and they would read it on the way. Now, if I was one of those messengers, I might speed walk, I may not run, 
But still, they're reading it on the way. So God says, I want you to make this message plain and clear so that people can understand it. Then look at verse 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. This seems kind of confusing to us. What I think God is saying is that the answer to Habakkuk's prayer will come when it needs to. Sometimes it's not that God isn't answering our prayer, but it's that we think he should have answered our prayer sooner. But God's saying, wait for it. The answer to your prayer is coming. It will surely come when it needs to as part of God's plan. Now, in God's answer to Habakkuk, I think we see two different components. And verse 4 is one of the more quoted verses in the book of Habakkuk. We see it three times in the New Testament. And there's two halves to it. First of all, God shows us the way of the wicked. God shows us the way of the wicked. Look at verse 4. Talking about Babylon, God says this. And this is what I think God wants Habakkuk to write down to make plain so that we can understand it. He says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. Talking about Babylon, first of all, they're puffed up people. What does that mean? They're proud. They have their faces held high. They think a lot of themselves. We've talked about how they take pride in their success. They take pride in their accomplishments, their military power. They do not seek God. They do not recognize their own weakness and ask God for strength, but they are self-dependent. They find strength and success in their military ability. Notice, he says, they're not righteous as well. His soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him. We, see, we will see this extreme contrast in the moment between the unrighteousness of the Babylonians and the righteousness of God. But there's a lot of comparisons here, echoes of Psalm 1. What does Psalm 1 say about the wicked? It says they're not so, but they're like chaff that the wind drives away. They walk in the way of sinners. They sit in the seat of the scornful. These people are not righteous people, and God recognizes that. That's part of God's message to Habakkuk. He says, I see what they're doing. I know that they're being wicked. There have been times when I've been teaching where a kid's been doing something maybe to distract the class and I can't get on him right at that moment because I need to finish what I'm talking about. But there's other kids who are pointing at them or trying to tattle them. And sometimes I just need to say, I see what he's doing. Trust me, I'm going to get him in trouble. He's getting what's coming to him. But you just need to be patient and wait. And God's saying, I know what Babylon is doing. I see their pride. I see their wickedness. They are not righteous people. We're going to see what God is going to do to Babylon. In verses 6 through 20, we see a series of woes or judgments that are going to happen to the Babylonian people. God will deal with them justly. We see this thing that is constant really, with how God deals with wicked rulers and nations, all of them eventually are destroyed. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, 
evil nation after evil nation, evil ruler after evil ruler, none of them last. God is constant. He deals with all of them. So the first half of this verse, God says, I see their wickedness. I see their evil way. I'm going to deal with it. They are not righteous people. I don't want you to think that I approve of their unrighteousness. But I want you to stop focusing on them. I want you to stop being concerned with what they're doing. And you need to turn to what you are supposed to do. We see that at the end of of verse 4. What do righteous people do? It says, but the righteous shall live by faith. This is the way of the righteous. Sometimes as we deal with suffering, especially as we deal with injustice, we can be so offended. We can be so just disgusted by wickedness, especially if you've been sinned against. I'm not trying to minimize that at all. But there comes a point when we have to stop focusing on their wickedness. We have to start saying, how am I going to live righteously? How am I going to live faithfully? That's what God is showing Habakkuk. They are wicked, they're proud, they're perverse, but righteous people live faithfully. God is saying, even when there's wickedness around you, I know your obedience and I see your faithfulness. So what does the righteous person do? They live by faith. We see this idea of faith in two different ways, I think. First of all, faith as in believing in the promises of God. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Jacob had faith in the promise of God. David had faith as he's in the wilderness being hunted by his father-in-law and then later his son. He says in Psalm 16, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. So many examples in the Old Testament do we have of people being faithful. A couple weeks ago when I did an overview of Habakkuk, I mentioned Joseph. Joseph was faithful to God after being wronged by his brothers, his boss, the nation that he was in. He was faithful to God. And at the end of his life, he said, what you use for evil, God intended for good. We can have faith in God. This is a theme of the Old Testament. So what do these characters have in common? They believed in the promises of God. But then in turn, it's not just belief. They lived faithfully. This is not just talking about some kind of abstract idea of faith. But it is a faith that leads to faithful living. He doesn't just say the just will have faith. He says the just will live by faith. What does it mean to live faithfully? It means to live in the way that God has called you to live. All the examples that we talked about, Abraham, he didn't just believe God, but he left his homeland and went to where God told him to go. Now, do we see examples where Abraham didn't live faithfully? Yes, absolutely. But he went where God wanted him to go. Joseph had faith in God, but that faith led him to faithfulness in living. David had faith in God, and that faith led him towards faithful living as well. For Habakkuk and for the righteous people in Judah who are receiving this message 
from God. God is telling them, I see the wicked. I see their pride. I see their evilness. You need to have faith in my character and my promises. And then you need to be faithful. You need to do the things that I've called you to do. Reading God's word. Obeying his law. Keeping his principles. Living faithfully is not just asking, what are the problems and concerns that I have? But it's also asking, how has God called me to live? We get this final verse here as we close our passage this morning. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Talking about Babylon again, we see one of their vices was alcohol and extreme drunkenness and alcoholism. It led to the destruction of the nation. If you read Daniel chapter 5, Belteshazzar is having this huge feast where they're all drunk. They have no idea that the Persians are invading the city. And as you can imagine, you think some of those people think back to what Habakkuk said. Wine is a traitor. And even God here predicting this vice that they all enjoyed as a nation, it would lead to their destruction. It says an arrogant man who is never at rest. We've talked about the Babylonians being prideful. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was so prideful that God made him walk like a beast for several days. He made him eat grass. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. He, collect, he gathers for himself all nations. He collects as his own all peoples. Their greed, their pride, their sinfulness, their unrighteousness, it would lead to their downfall. But righteous people would live by faith. They would be faithful to God and his plan. They would trust that God is who he says he is. I mentioned the book earlier, Trusting God by Jerry Bridges, one of my favorite books on suffering. Jerry Bridges himself had several different life tragedies. He was born in 1929 in the middle of the Great Depression. He had several disabilities, including me cross-eyed deaf in his right ear, and he had a breastbone deformity. He had many different struggles while he was in the Navy, even though during that time he made a profession of faith. His wife in 1987 was diagnosed in cancer and passed away. And he had so many different pains and suffering in his life. But in his book, Trusting God, he says this, God never wastes pain. He always uses it to accomplish his purpose. And his purpose is for his glory and our good. Therefore, we can trust him when our hearts are aching or our bodies are racked with pain. What does it look like to be faithful to God, to have faith in what God has called us to do? Sometimes when we're suffering, it means saying, God is not wasting my pain. It may not make sense. We don't know God's plan yet. We can trust in his character. What did Jerry Bridges say? God is good. He's sovereign. It's going to be used for his purpose and for our good. How can we live faithfully 
as Christians. There's a number of different passages I could go to, but as we close this morning, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10 for just a moment. How can we live faithfully as Christians in this New Testament age? I think the author of Hebrews gives us a good place to start. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with true with a true heart and assurance of faith, with hearts that are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We can be faithful because God is faithful. First of all, how do we live by faith? We hold fast to our confession. We hold fast to what we believe about God. If we believe these things are true about God, his character, his eternal nature, his love, his gospel, the author of Hebrews talks about that. The blood of Jesus Christ that has been shed for us. We can be faithful by believing the gospel of Jesus Christ and remembering it in our lives. The author of Hebrews continues. He says, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. So being faithful is not just believing in the attributes of God and the gospel of God. But it's secondly, stirring up the body of Christ. That doesn't mean stirring up trouble or stirring up drama or tension. But it says stirring one another up to love and good works. How can you, as a member of our church, as a Christian, be faithful in loving people in this church and helping others love others and do good works? It's not just the pastor's job. It's not just the elder's job. It is the Christian's job in the church to be faithful, to stir each other up, to promote love and good works here. As we keep reading, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. How can we live faithfully, assembling as the people of God? We did what we had to do during COVID, but if COVID-19 taught us anything, it's that we need to gather together in person as the people of God. We need fellowship. We need unity. We need in-person, face-to-face interaction. We don't like staring at each other through a screen. We don't like trying to figure out all the technology. We like being in person, assembling together as the body of Christ. I'll just be honest. There's a lot of preachers you can listen to on the internet. They're probably better speakers than me. They may be smarter than I am. But there's something about being here in this church with the body of Christ that you need as a believer in Jesus Christ. So how can we be faithful? How can we live faithfully? Commit to assembling here as the people of God. That doesn't mean if we miss a Sunday, we're going to send people to your house knocking on your door. But it does mean we're committed to assembling as the body of Christ. And then lastly, how can we be faithful? 
Let me read that verse again. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging each other, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. We can encourage each other. We all see people in our church, in our lives, in our family that need encouragement. You may not say the thing that's going to encourage them the most. You may not say anything that you think is profound. But your presence, your care, your love will encourage them. And maybe what helps them get through a hard time. These are not the only ways to live faithfully. But these are part of how we as Christians, when we have questions, when we're going through suffering, can say, you know what? I'm going to take my mind off of myself, my suffering, the ways that I feel like I've been wronged. I'm going to live faithfully. I'm going to believe what God has called me to believe. I'm going to encourage the body of Christ to love and good works. I'm going to assemble here with my church family. I'm going to encourage people in this church. If we do that as a church, it may not mean that we pack the place out and that every seat is going to be filled. We can say that we're a faithful church doing what God has called us to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your character, for your love. We thank you for the book of Habakkuk. There are hard questions. There's things we still don't understand. Even at the end of Habakkuk's life, I'm sure there were things that he didn't really understand, things that he had questions about. We know that he was faithful. We know that he trusted you. At the end of the book, we see that you were his strength. We ask that you would be our strength here this morning. Help us to obey what you've called us to do. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.